Chapter One, Part One of the Formation of Vegetable Moulds Through the Action of Worms, with Observations on Their Habits, by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One, Part One, Habits of Worms. Nature of the sites inhabited can live long under water. Nocturnal. Wander about at night. Often lie close to the mouths of their burrows and are thus destroyed in large numbers by birds. Structure. Do not possess eyes, but can distinguish between light and darkness. Retreat rapidly when brightly illuminated, not by reflex action. Power of attention. Sensitive to heat and cold. Completely deaf. Sensitive to vibrations and to touch. Feeble power of smell. Taste. Mental qualities. Nature of food. Omnivorous. Digestion. Leaves before being swallowed, moistened with a fluid of the nature of the pancreatic secretion. Extra-stomachal digestion. Calciferous glands. Structure of. Calcareous concretions formed in the anterior pair of glands. The calcareous matter primarily in excretion, but secondarily serves to neutralize the acids generated during the digestive process. Earthworms are distributed throughout the world under the form of a few genera, which externally are closely similar to one another. The British species of Lumbricus have never been carefully monographed, but we may judge of their probable number from those inhabiting neighboring countries. In Scandinavia there are eight species, according to Eisen. Footnote. Bildrag til Scandinaviens Olek Hitfana, 1871. End of footnote. But two of these rarely burrow in the ground, and one inhabits very wet places or even lives under the water. Here we are concerned only with the kinds which bring up earth to the surface in the form of castings. Hofmeister says that the species in Germany are not well known, but gives the same number as Eisen, together with some strongly marked varieties. Footnote. Die bis jetzt bekannten Arten aus der Familie der Regenwürmen. 1845. End of footnote. Earthworms abound in England in many different stations. Their castings may be seen in extraordinary numbers on commons and chalk downs, so as almost to cover the whole surface, where the soil is poor and the grass short and thin. But they are almost, or quite, as numerous in some of the London parks, where the grass grows well and the soil appears rich. Even on the same field, Worms are much more frequent in some places than in others, without any visible difference in the nature of the soil. They abound in paved courtyards close to houses, and an instance will be given in which they had burrowed through the floor of a very damp cellar. I have seen worms in black peat in a boggy field, but they are extremely rare or quite absent in the drier, brown, fibrous peat, which is so much valued by gardeners. On dry, sandy, or gravelly tracks, where heath, with some gorse, ferns, coarse grass, moss, and lichens alone grow, hardly any worms can be found. But in many parts of England, wherever a path crosses a heath, its surface becomes covered with a fine, short sward. Whether this change of vegetation is due to the taller plants being killed by the occasional trampling of man and animals, or to the soil being occasionally manured by the droppings from animals, I do not know. Footnote. There is even some reason to believe 
that pressure is actually favorable to the growth of grasses for professor buckman who made many observations on their growth in the experimental gardens of the royal agricultural college remarks gardener's chronicle 1854 page 169 quote, another circumstance in the cultivation of grasses in the separate form or small patches is the impossibility of rolling or treading them firmly without which no pasture can continue good End quote. End of footnote. on such grassy paths worm castings may often be seen on a heath in surrey which was carefully examined there were only a few castings on these paths where they were much inclined but on the more level parts where a bed of fine earth had been washed down from the steeper parts and had accumulated to a thickness of a few inches worm castings abounded these spots seemed to be overstocked with worms so that they had been compelled to spread to a distance of a few feet from the grassy paths and here their castings had been thrown up along the heath but beyond this limit not a single casting could be found a layer though a thin one of fine earth which probably long retains some moisture is in all cases as i believe necessary for their existence and the mere compression of the soil appears to be in some degree favorable to them for they often abound in old gravel walks and in footpaths across fields beneath large trees few castings can be found during certain seasons of the year and this is apparently due to the moisture having been sucked out of the ground by the innumerable roots of the trees for such places may be seen covered with castings after the heavy autumnal rains although most coppices and woods support many worms yet in a forest of tall and ancient beech trees in knoll park where the ground beneath was bare of all vegetation not a single casting could be found over wide spaces even during the autumn nevertheless castings were abundant on some grass-covered glades and indentations which penetrated this forest on the mountains of north wales and on the alps worms as i have been informed are in most places rare and this may perhaps be due to the close proximity of the subjacent rocks into which worms cannot burrow during the winter so as to escape being frozen dr mackintosh however found worm castings at a height of fifteen hundred feet on Chilhalian in scotland they are numerous on some hills near turin at from two hundred to three hundred feet above the sea and at a great altitude on the nilgiri mountains in south india and on the himalaya earthworms must be considered as terrestrial animals though they are still in one sense semi-aquatic like the other members of the great class of annelids to which they belong Monsieur perrier found that their exposure to the dry air of a room for only a single night was fatal to them on the other hand he kept several large worms alive for nearly four months completely submerged in water footnote i shall have occasion often to refer to m perrier's admirable memoir organisation des lombriciens terrestres in archives de zoologie experimentale volume three eighteen seventy four page three seventy two C. F. Moren, De Lombrici Terrestris, Historia Naturelle, 1829, page 14, found that worms endured immersion for fifteen to twenty days in summer, but that in winter they died when thus treated. End of footnote. During the summer, when the ground is dry, they penetrate to a considerable depth, and cease to work, as they do during the winter when the ground is frozen. Worms are nocturnal in their habits, 
and at night may be seen crawling about in large numbers, but usually with their tails still inserted in their burrows. By the expansion of this part of their bodies, and with the help of the short, slightly reflexed bristles with which their bodies are armed, they hold so fast that they can seldom be dragged out of the ground without being torn into pieces. Footnote. Moren, de Lambrici Terrestris, Historia Natural, etc., 1829, page 67. End of footnote. During the day, they remain in their burrows, except at the pairing season, when those which inhabit adjoining burrows expose the greater part of their bodies for an hour or two in the early morning. Sick individuals, which are generally affected by the parasitic larvae of a fly, must also be accepted, as they wander about during the day and die on the surface. After heavy rain succeeding dry weather, an astonishing number of dead worms may sometimes be seen lying on the ground. Mr. Galton informs me that on one such occasion, March 1881, the dead worms averaged one for every two and a half paces of length on a walk in the Hyde Park, four paces in width. He counted no less than forty-five dead worms in one place in a length of sixteen paces. From the facts above given, it is not probable that these worms could have been drowned, and if they had been drowned, they would have perished in their burrows. I believe that they were already sick, and that their deaths were merely hastened by the ground being flooded. It has often been said that under ordinary circumstances, healthy worms never, or very rarely, completely leave their burrows at night. But this is an error, as White of Selborne long ago knew. In the morning, after there has been heavy rain, the film of mud or of very fine sand over gravel walks is often plainly marked with their tracks. I have noticed this from August to May, both months included, and it probably occurs during the two remaining months of the year when they are wet. On these occasions, very few dead worms could be seen anywhere. On January 31, 1881, after a long continued and unusually severe frost with much snow, as soon as a thaw set in, the walks were marked with innumerable tracks. On one occasion, five tracks were counted crossing a space of only an inch square. They could sometimes be traced either to or from the mouths of the burrows in the gravel walks, for distances between two or three up to fifteen yards. I have never seen two tracks leading to the same burrow, nor is it likely, from what we shall presently see of their sense organs, that a worm could find its way back to its burrow after having once left it. They apparently leave their burrows on a voyage of discovery, and thus they find new sites to inhabit. Moren states, Footnote, De Limbrici Terrestris Historica Naturalis, etc., page 14, end of footnote, that worms often lie for hours, almost motionless, close beneath the mouths of their burrows. I have occasionally noticed the same fact, with worms kept in pots in the house, so that by looking down into their burrows, their heads could just be seen. If the ejected earth or rubbish over the burrows be suddenly removed, the end of the worm's body may very often be seen rapidly retreating. This habit of lying near the surface leads to their destruction to an immense extent. Every morning during certain seasons of the year, the thrushes and blackbirds on all the lawns throughout the country draw out of their holes an astonishing number of worms, and this they could not do unless they lay close to the surface. It is not probable that worms behave in this manner for the sake of breathing fresh air, for we have seen that they can live for a long time under water. I believe that they lie near the surface for the sake of warmth, 
especially in the morning, and we shall hereafter find that they often coat the mouths of their burrows with leaves, apparently to prevent their bodies from coming into close contact with the cold, damp earth. It is said that they completely close their burrows during the winter. Structure A few remarks must be made on this subject. The body of a large worm consists of from 100 to 200 almost cylindrical rings or segments, each furnished with minute bristles. The muscular system is well developed. Worms can crawl backwards as well as forwards, and by the aid of their affixed tails can retreat with extraordinary rapidity into their burrows. The mouth is situated at the anterior end of the body, and is provided with a little projection, lobe or lip, as it has variously been called, which is used for prehension. Internally, behind the mouth, there is a strong pharynx, shown in the accompanying diagram, figure 1, which is pushed forwards when the animal eats, and this part corresponds, according to Perrier, with the protrudable trunk or proboscis of other annelids. Legend to figure 1. Diagram of the alimentary canal of an earthworm, Lumbricus, copied from Ray Lancaster, in Quarterly Journal of Microscopic Science, Volume 15, N.S., Plate 7. The pharynx leads into the esophagus, on each side of which, in the lower part, there are three pairs of large glands, which secrete a surprising amount of carbonate of lime. These calciferous glands are highly remarkable, for nothing like them is known in any other animal. Their use will be discussed when we treat of the digestive process. In most of the species, the esophagus is enlarged into a crop in front of the gizzard. This latter organ is lined with a smooth, thick chitinous membrane, and is surrounded by weak, longitudinal, but powerful transverse muscles. Perrier saw these muscles in energetic action, and as he remarks, the trituration of the food must be chiefly effected by this organ, for worms possess no jaws or teeth of any kind. Grains of sand and small stones, from the one-twentieth to a little more than the one-tenth inch in diameter, may generally be found in their gizzards and intestines. As it is certain that worms swallow many little stones, independently of those swallowed while excavating their burrows, it is probable that they serve, like millstones, to triturate their food. The gizzard opens into the intestine, which runs in a straight course to the vent at the posterior end of the body, the intestine presents a remarkable structure. The typhlosolus, or, as the old anatomists called it, an intestine within an intestine, and Claparede, footnote, Histologia untersuchungen über die Regenwürmen, Zeitschrift für Wissenschaft Zoologie, B, 19, 1869, page 611, end of footnote, has shown that this consists of a deep longitudinal involution of the walls of the intestine, by which means an extensive absorbent surface is gained. The circulatory system is well developed. Worms breathe by their skin, as they do not possess any special respiratory organs. The two sexes are united in the same individual, but two individuals pair together. The nervous system is fairly well developed, and the two almost confluent cerebral ganglia are situated very near to the anterior end of the body. Senses. Worms are destitute of eyes, and at first I thought they were quite insensible to light, for those kept in confinement were repeatedly observed by the aid of a candle, and others out of doors, 
by the aid of a lantern, yet they were rarely alarmed, although extremely timid animals. Other persons have found no difficulty in observing worms at night by the same means. Footnote. For instance, Mr. Bridgman and Mr. Newman, The Zoologist, Volume 7, 1849, page 2576, and some friends who observed worms for me. End of footnote. Hofmeister, however, states, Footnote. Family de Regenwürmen, 1845, page 18, end of footnote, that worms, with the exception of a few individuals, are extremely sensitive to light, but he admits that in most cases a certain time is requisite for its action. These statements led me to watch, on many successive nights, worms kept in pots, which were protected from currents of air by means of glass plates. The pots were approached very gently, in order that no vibration of the floor should be caused. When under these circumstances, worms were illuminated by a bull's-eye lantern having slides of dark red and blue glass, which intercepted so much light that they could be seen only with some difficulty, they were not at all affected by this amount of light, however long they were exposed to it. The light, as far as I could judge, was brighter than that from the full moon. Its color apparently made no difference in the result. When they were illuminated by a candle, or even by a bright paraffin lamp, they were not usually affected at first, nor were they when the light was alternately admitted and shut off. Sometimes, however, they behaved very differently, for as soon as the light fell on them, they withdrew into their burrows with almost instantaneous rapidity. This occurred perhaps once out of a dozen times. When they did not withdraw instantly, they often raised the anterior tapering ends of their bodies from the ground, as if their attention was aroused, or if surprise was felt. Or, they moved their bodies from side to side, as if feeling for some object. They appeared distressed by the light, but I doubt whether this was really the case, for on two occasions, after withdrawing slowly, they remained for a long time, with their anterior extremities protruding a little from the mouths of their burrows, in which position they were ready for instant and complete withdrawal. When the light from a candle was concentrated by means of a large lens on the anterior extremity, they generally withdrew instantly. But this concentrated light failed to act, perhaps once out of half a dozen trials. The light was, on one occasion, concentrated on a worm lying beneath water in a saucer, and it instantly withdrew into its burrow. In all cases, the duration of the light, unless extremely feeble, made a great difference in the result. For worms left exposed before a paraffin lamp or a candle invariably retreated into their burrows within from five to fifteen minutes, and if in the evening the pots were illuminated before the worms had come out of their burrows, they failed to appear. From the foregoing facts, it is evident that light affects worms by its intensity and by its duration. It is only the anterior extremity of the body where the cerebral ganglia lie, which is affected by light, as Hofmeister asserts, and as I have observed on many occasions. If this part is shaded, other parts of the body may be fully illuminated, and no effect will be produced. As these animals have no eyes, we must suppose that the light passes through their skins, and in some manner excites their cerebral ganglia. It appeared at first probable that the different manner in which they were affected on different occasions might be explained, either by the degree of extension of their skin, 
and its consequent transparency, or by some particular incidence of the light. But I could discover no relation. One thing was manifest, namely, that when worms were employed in dragging leaves into their burrows, or in eating them, and even during the short intervals, whilst they rested from their work, they either did not perceive the light, or were regardless of it. And this occurred, even when the light was concentrated on them through a large lens. So, again, whilst they are paired, they will remain for an hour or two out of their burrows, fully exposed to the morning light. But it appears from what Hofmeister says, that a light will occasionally cause paired individuals to separate. When a worm is suddenly illuminated, and dashes like a rabbit into its burrow, to use the expression employed by a friend, we are at first led to look at the action as a reflex one. The irritation of the cerebral ganglia appears to cause certain muscles to contract in an inevitable manner, independently of the will or consciousness of the animal, as if it were an automaton. But the different effect which a light produced on different occasions, and especially the fact that a worm, when in any way employed, and in the intervals of such employment, whatever set of muscles and ganglia may then have been brought into play, is often regardless of light, are opposed to the view of the sudden withdrawal being a simple reflex action. With the higher animals, when close attention to some object leads to the disregard of the impressions which other objects must be producing on them, we attribute this to their attention being absorbed. An attention implies the presence of a mind. Every sportsman knows that he can approach animals whilst they are grazing, fighting, or courting, much more easily than at other times. The state also of the nervous system of the higher animals differs much at different times. For instance, a horse is much more readily startled at one time than at another. The comparison here implied between the actions of one of the higher animals and of one so low in scale as an earthworm may appear far-fetched. For we thus attribute to the worm attention and some mental power. Nevertheless, I can see no reason to doubt the justice of the comparison. Although worms cannot be said to possess the power of vision, their sensitiveness to light enables them to distinguish between day and night, and they thus escape extreme danger from the many diurnal animals which prey on them. Their withdrawal into their burrows during the day appears, however, to have become an habitual action for worms kept in pots, covered by glass plates, over which sheets of black paper were spread, and placed before a northeast window, remained during the daytime in their burrows, and came out every night, and they continued thus to act for a week. No doubt a little light may have entered between the sheets of glass and the blackened paper, but we know from the trials with colored glass that worms are indifferent to a small amount of light. Worms appear to be less sensitive to moderate radiant heat than to bright light. I judge of this from having held at different times a poker heated to a dull redness near some worms, at a distance which caused a very sensible degree of warmth in my hand. One of them took no notice. A second withdrew into its burrow, but not quickly, the third and fourth much more quickly, and the fifth as quickly as possible. The light from a candle, concentrated by a lens, and passing through a sheet of glass, which would intercept most of the heat rays, generally caused a much more rapid retreat than did the heated poker. Worms are sensitive to a low temperature, as may be inferred from their not coming out of their burrows during a frost. Worms do not possess any sense of hearing. They took not the least notice of the shrill notes from a metal whistle, 
which was repeatedly sounded near them nor did they of the deepest and loudest tones of a bassoon they were indifferent to shouts if care was taken that the breath did not strike them when placed on a table close to the keys of a piano which was played as loudly as possible they remained perfectly quiet although they are indifferent to undulations in the air audible by us they are extremely sensitive to vibrations in any solid object when the pots containing two worms which had remained quite indifferent to the sound of the piano were placed on this instrument and the note c and the bass cleft was struck both instantly retreated into their burrows after a time they emerged and when g above the line in the treble cleft was struck they again retreated under similar circumstances on another night one worm dashed into its burrow on a very high note being struck only once and the other worm when c in the treble cleft was struck on these occasions the worms were not touching the sides of the pots which stood in saucers so that the vibrations before reaching their bodies had to pass from the sounding board of the piano through the saucer the bottom of the pot and the damp not very compact earth on which they lay with their tails in their burrows they often showed their sensitiveness when the pot in which they lived or the table on which the pot stood was accidentally and lightly struck but they appeared less sensitive to such jars than to the vibrations of the piano and their sensitiveness to jars varied much at different times it has often been said that if the ground is beaten or otherwise made to tremble worms believe that they are pursued by a mole and leave their burrows from one account that i have received i have no doubt that this is often the case but a gentleman informs me that he lately saw eight or ten worms leave their burrows and crawl about on the grass on some boggy land on which two men had just trampled while setting a trap and this occurred in a part of ireland where there were no moles i have been assured by a volunteer that he has often seen many large earthworms crawling quickly about the grass a few minutes after his company had fired a volley with blank cartridges the peewit tringa vanellus linnaeus seems to know instinctively that worms will emerge if the ground is made to tremble for bishop stanley states as i hear from mr morehouse that a young peewit kept in confinement used to stand on one leg and beat the turf with the other leg until the worms crawled out of their burrows when they were instantly devoured nevertheless worms do not invariably leave their burrows when the ground is made to tremble as i know by having beaten it with a spade but perhaps it was beaten too violently the whole body of a worm is sensitive to contact a slight puff of air from the mouth causes an instant retreat the glass plates placed over the pots did not fit closely and blowing through the very narrow chinks thus left often sufficed to cause a rapid retreat they sometimes perceived the eddies in the air caused by quickly removing the glass plates when a worm first comes out of its burrow it generally moves the much extended anterior extremity of its body from side to side in all directions apparently as an organ of touch and there is some reason to believe as we shall see in the next chapter that they are thus enabled to gain a general notion of the form of an object of all their senses that of touch including in this term the perception of a vibration seems much the most highly developed end of part one of chapter one